I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's a whole bunch of people out there where the traditional model doesn't work. There simply isn't enough information on these people to make a reasonable credit call. Welcome back to How to Lend Money to Strangers. In today's episode, I speak to Oscar Costa from BigDataScoring.com. Oscar Costa is a Dutch mining engineer turned South African banker turned international entrepreneur. I met him at the midpoint of that progression when he was my boss, most famous for organizing a team bonding day where he took us to his previous employer, the Explosive Factory. But I haven't made a podcast about how to efficiently break and move a rock face using a series of carefully placed and perfectly timed charges. How to Lend Money to Strangers is a podcast about lending strategies around the world and across the credit life cycle. Sometimes those strategies are underpinned by traditional data and tools, and sometimes, like today, there's something a bit newer on the market. Your entrance into banking was an unusual path, but in terms of your experience within lending was working with credit cards and working with debt collection and traditional scorecard models and a market with multiple credit bureaus, solid data, and you can kind of work a traditional scorecard approach. But now, what's the approach you're taking? I'm focusing on on Africa, but big data scoring, the company, is largely focused on South America. It's really big for them. Management is based in Chile. Um, But in general, the developing world is seen as the market we're going after for a couple of reasons. A, it's it's traditionally the the people who've been excluded from the credit cycle. There's so much data available on, say, Western Europe, typically, that you don't really need to resort to alternative data to get an image of what someone is like. There's, There's quite a lot of stuff available. We found within the credit bureau world that often the fact that we could tell somebody was definitely thin file, definitely new to credit, was the most important thing. So you could build a new to credit score, but actually kind of the most important part of your new to credit score was the fact that you didn't have bureau data. The vast majority of people are there. And so the fact that somebody isn't tells you something and you can infer quite a lot from that. So what my entry into this was really is after I sold the debt collection firm, and there we pretty much tried to work that along, sort of to try and apply data in a way that you can work smarter on things. And that sort of way of thinking of what else can you do with data sort of stuck in my head. And that's when I started looking around here. Well, in, in, firstly, I guess close to home to the South African context. Clearly, we've got a large thin file population, not necessarily unbanked, but thin file. And when I say not unbanked, that might be things like time or other little things. But that's, it tells you something, but it doesn't tell you everything either. 
combine that with the pressure of financial inclusion. And that sort of made me realize, well, there is actually something to be done there. I then stumbled across initially two models world. At that stage, I didn't know that, but they largely used uh, cellular data to build credit models. And they're landing up in, in East Africa specifically. That made me sort of go like, well, that's pretty interesting. But who else is playing in this market? And that's when I came in touch with big data scoring. So effectively, when you ask what, what are the markets we're focusing on, yes, it's a developing market because we feel we can make the biggest difference there. Therefore, that's also the best market for us to go after. Um, yeah, I'm sure we can improve scoring in, in more established markets, but it will be marginal. I mean, if you do a good job modeling, you should be able to construct a pretty good model based on bureau data in the developed world. Yeah, and I think in most developed worlds, there's already more segments that are possible to make than they could practically put a strategy against. So, you know, we often would run against that. We say, I can give you 50 types of customers. I only want high, medium, and low risk. I don't want to deal with 50 scales of risk. Yeah, you'll find somebody who might have some marketing opportunities for that to to get down a little bit finer. But from a risk point of view, most of the time, the risk data exists. Um, so when we talk big data, what sort of data are you talking about in particular? Like, what are the sources of that data you're bringing in? So we we do this sort of in a couple of phases. The, the easiest phase is where we simply get an email address, a cell phone number and a, a physical address. And based on that, we can then ping a whole bunch of databases and typically pick up somewhere between three and 5,000 data points per individual. What's the general use of the land? Is it industrial? Is it residential? Is it mixed? How many schools in the area? How many shopping centers in the area? How many parks? And how far is this specific spot from any of those points of interest? Sort of intuitively, it makes sense that a residence, which is fairly close to a park, a shopping center, and a house, is probably more valuable. So that's what the sort of thing. Another one we do is effectively a nice photography of the amount of artificial light in an area. The northern hemisphere is lit up like a Christmas tree. The southern hemisphere is pretty dark. And if you can start zooming this in on areas where people live, again, it's, it's a, the link to effluence. That's the sort of stuff we do on address. Um, on cell phone number, it's things like who's the provider. And interestingly, different providers do attract slightly different customers. So in a South African context, cell C was a latecomer to the party and always had a value for money type of offering. But they had to lure largely existing cell phone clients over to them. As a result, the characteristics of the cell phone, cell C population are a little bit different from, say, if I were to call my MTM. You can also see whether a number's been ported or not, clearly whether it's a prepaid or a contract, and whether it's a company phone or a personal phone. Those are the sort of type of things on that. Email address is, again, is it a company email? Is it a personal email? Um, who's the provider? Other thing which is interesting, and I didn't know until I started working with big data, is the actual makeup of the email address has also got a link to risk. So if I take myself as an example, my personal email address is my initial and my complete surname. Typically, that is better in terms of risk versus something like Aussie 3268. So what I just spoke you through is what we call phase one, and that's where we always start, because this is easy to do a POC on. Give me the data, we'll construct a model, we'll prove to you by supplying you with genies or KSs or whatever, how you want to measure that, how good it is. And then we can do something with it. 
um, without requiring massive integration, data flow up and down, all that sort of stuff. And in terms of our modeling techniques, it's 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 a combination of the classic ones like regression analysis, all that sort of stuff, combined with some AI. Traditional data tends to be a pretty limited set of variables, which all have a very strong link to this. They slope it very nicely. Whereas alternative data is the polar opposite in that it's it's a plethora of different variables. None of each separate one, it's got a very strong link of risk, but they need to be pre-processed to come up with a bunch of, which then have a strong link. But we start with 5,000 old variables initially. The, the next level up is, of all your client acquisition is digital, then instantly you've got incremental information, namely what's the what's the behavior on the website? Do people read the T's and C's? How fast do they type? Device information, what are they using to access you in terms of what is the operating system on the device, what device is it, how many mistakes do they make. It's all the sort of stuff you can measure. If people use an app, then you can also start scraping stuff off a smartphone. Basically, you send someone a cookie to a smartphone and say, listen, you've applied to us. We would like to get access to the following information on your smartphone. And people can then tick things whether they allow you to have access here and so they don't look at, you know, who does Brenda know, but they do look at what's your ratio between inbound and outbound calls. As you can imagine, that's really rich information. It's also got some downside. Practically, it requires quite a lot of integration between you and your clients. It's a lot of PT and cost to go through for the sake of doing the POC. Um, unless you come up with some generic scorecard, but, well, in your data guy, you know, it's like a generic scorecard across all products, basically globally, is unlikely to be very accurate. I mean, it's, it's just not specific enough to any specific population. Yeah, I mean, we, we've, the typical improvement we see in Gini is of the order of 25%. The other thing we found, which is, again, that will speak to you also from your one experience, is by asking people to get access to all this information on your smartphone, you get negative cell selection. And that's, who are the people who give you all the access? the super risky ones. Who are the guys who are saying, well, I'm not sure if I want these guys to know all that stuff. Those are probably the people with slightly better risk profile. So if, if that is the only thing you do, you got to be careful not to rob yourself of your best potential prospects. You know, in a world where, where we're all told about being careful of scams, it does make you nervous. It's a similar problem open banking have had, but open banking, I think, can benefit by the fact it can come from a big name bank that you've you've heard for 200 years you can trust them but if i saw yeah if i saw particularly if it's a separate app right and you're like well it's credit no i mean but, but at least most of us have got a white label app okay. so if you would apply with epsa you would get an epsa link but i mean that, that makes this integration tricky yeah this is not some mickey mouse front you can stick on the top of it and in our experience although it's powerful it's hard enough with, this is sort of not necessarily risk inherent, but commercially, it's hard enough to speak to banks to get them to do something new without having to tackle all sorts of integration. You know what the IT part is like? There's always a bunch of stuff which got proven business cases of X amount of billion of rent. And then there's this oak who wants to do something funky new. It's hard to, to get through the door even with that. Where they make the biggest inroads are digital lenders, where this stuff is, is relatively speaking much easier. They've got the whole infrastructure is set up. Yeah, and I think a lot of those, you know, the digital lenders understand the inherent value of these data fields, but there's nowhere to look to. 
because all the history of predictive modeling in, in financial services hasn't needed that, hasn't looked at that. And it, you can do a ground up uh, work and a data analyst can look at all the data and in theory throw it in a model. But there isn't that history of knowledge of how to treat these fields that are obviously valuable, but sort of traditionally didn't exist. I think as well, if you're going to tell a bank, okay, now in your internet banking, I'm also going to want you to add in these steps. It's going to be hard for them, whereas a digital bank has probably got somebody who can find a way to make it smooth. And- which, which is also why you see more and more telcos moving into this space, because they already got all of this data, and they definitely have got the base needed to do appropriate modeling. They, I forgot there's a name of a specific file that you can pull off handsets. That's got a wealth of information. And I guess in East Africa, that's why mobile lending is is so big there. I mean, it's a couple of reasons. It's also very easy to disperse funds. There's a whole bunch of people out there where the traditional model doesn't work. There simply isn't enough information on these people to make a reasonable credit call. There's really been two approaches. One is, well, let's treat them as super risky and people pay a super high price for it. And then hopefully now the income model is strong enough to offset whatever bad risk we take on board. And the overarching opportunity is to sort of put that gray bit into more black and white. There's a Because you're now treating a whole bunch of people who are maybe not as good as the traditional people, but clearly not as bad as you're treating them right now. In general, bigger banks take the approach. If we don't know, we rather say no. And the use of alternative data is a way to try and you will always have a bunch of people where you don't know one of them, but at least, as I said, sort of declutter some of the gray in more black and white. This approach solves two issues. So one, you, you get rid of all the data capturing problem. And so when we were doing uh, lending in Africa, it wasn't so much that um, you know, the data was impossible, like the traditional data, it just, it, it hadn't been kept, it hadn't been stored. You'd have had to build out a whole lot of infrastructure and culture to get all that data into a central point to model anyway. And the phone's doing that and it solves that problem. But two, kind of a more on the soft side, like normally, as you say, when, when people are pricing a loan, they're going to say, well, the, the price is really high because it's risky, where it's fully covered by credit bureaus and such. Your loan is more expensive because you've got some negative uh, behaviors in your past. You've missed yeah. some payment, you've gone over limit. So you have displayed some risk behaviors that mean we can't take that risk on you without charging for it. But in the thin file, new to credit unbanked space, the risk is simply, I don't know. So I'm going to charge you a lot of money because I don't know a better way to do it. And this to see the innovation come in this space is really pleasing to see on that front because you're saying, well, we can know about this. There's all this information that traditional banks are just not using. And he has a way to do that and therefore opens up pricing and and or uh, gives the, the acquisition team somewhere else something to show their boss. Because again, nobody's going to take the risk in their career to say, oh yeah, let's open the door to this population because I've got a good gut feeling. Yeah, But if they've got the data, Gini scores and KS scores, you can just fully plot that against your existing credit score and say, well, here's the new to credit population or here's our test population. It's interesting how all bureaus claim to be doing some stuff there, but at the same time, because in some way, they should be ideally positioned. I mean, they they do have more data to 
to work with than 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 likes of fintechs like ourselves have. And at the same time, some of them are pretty bureaucratic. I think Experian and, and TU are good examples of it's a big corporate, it serves big corporate clients. And in fact, is for the vast majority of the big corporate clients of those euros, this is not a space that's very big for them right now. So they're probably better off leaving it to the smaller fintechs to do a bunch of stuff. Um, and and that's that's what you see. So what we what we do find is we I think this is a good uh, sort of space for cooperation between a data house like like a bureau and ourselves in that for us the big attraction is that's existing infrastructure so pumping a score through to a big bank is much easier if it runs through to you or experience infrastructure than us having to set that up because then we again run up against compliance and Although like we're doing something with JD and there it's that simple, but JD is happy to work through an API into that system. That's not going to fly with an app or anybody. Yeah, I think there's two points on that, and one one on kind of putting that score in the bureau or a centralized thing. I think makes sense. And so we we did some work uh, with somebody in this space a few years ago, and yeah, the problems were a lot around the logistics, and the fact is you kind of wanted to first check the bureau. And then if they weren't on the bureau, you wanted to run the score, but they created an awkward process. Whereas if it was all housed in one space, that's much better. Two, the data fields you sort of talked about, at least the identifying data fields, are things that a bureau often has. So you, you can run it and then you can create that easy switch of whichever score you want being produced. And then they can go out and offer that to their clients and we do some sort of revenue snare model. That's the model that we're working on here. That's also one of the nice things about being a small fintech. You've got way more flexibility than being a big corporate. So if people prefer to deal with it through an already trusted source like, like a bureau, I guess that's typically the bureau, that's fine. But for specific digital lenders, it might actually be better not to do it through a bureau because ultimately a bespoke model will always be stronger than some generic model. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, I mean, both models can work. And ultimately, what people do with our score is, again, very similar to how people use credit bureau scores in yeah, some some will literally base that decisioning process on that score only, whereas others will have that score feeding into some process which has got some knockout rules or maybe some further processing what they do internally. Yeah, and um, so we've been talking a lot about sort of proof of concepts and things so far, but in the in the 
the business itself globally, I think you've 100 million credit decisions made already yeah. last year. So this is not all theory is actually. No. Um, this is a space where lots of people working, but very few people can claim results. Because this is also the sort of space where lots of AR propeller heads think they can track the problem. To some extent, that's true. This, this is also the classic case where progress is both hindered and aided with experience. It's actually good that some youngster on a beanbag with long hair thinks about this stuff completely unhindered by any previous industry knowledge. Because that's anyone with too much experience probably thinks too much inside the box. At the same time, there's something like credits. You do need to have some other people in there then who can say, well, yeah, that's cool, but you need to take these following five things. That doesn't mean that the thinking needs to be restrained, but someone needs to make it practical in the end. To simply let the same space cadets go mad on this is likely to lend you into a heap of problems if you don't actually understand the lending industry. Yeah, so we did some work with a, a fintech to using alternative data to, to build a score uh, in one of the markets. And what was interesting that they took an approach which on the one hand is, is really admirable. They went in first worth a big pile of money and they lent it out to a whole lot of people and then they modeled it from there and then they built their score and they approached us and they wanted to do some work and we took the bureau score and what was interesting is that their score was really predictive on their population but it became less clearly predictive on the population as a whole and this is all then my speculation but I wondered in going out and lending as kind of unheard of fintech People are take the money from you and then probably don't care that much about paying you back, especially since this was a, a limited time project. So at some point they just disappeared. So I wondered if because they lent and they got a whole lot of bads that just genuinely weren't really that bad customers, but because of the nature of the business, they, they went bad. And but, so it's assuming that people who took out that loan were aware of that nature of the business. To some extent, but I mean, they, they were certainly aware that this is a company they've never heard of before who's now giving them a loan. They modeled the score and it worked really well on the data, but it was really overfitted to a population that didn't translate very well. Now, mm. as a proof of concept of the technology, it was fine. But what it didn't do was build a score that I, you could implement until you said, okay, you've got to go back. I, I now trust you can do this. But I think it fits to that thing where... You can get caught up in the numbers. You can you can run away with it and then find. But yeah, you can create these these business models that are fantastically accurate, but don't stand up to the rigors of developing. I agree with that. So that's why it's when someone's literally not done anything in ThinFile, then you, then you don't basically have the target variable to model on, and that, that's an issue. The vast majority of people we deal with have have done something and would like to expand on this in a more accurate way. Uh, and that's normally what we deal with. If there's actually no performance data, I guess the other one that you pointed out earlier is sort of the classic slow and grow, right? Just indeed. Throw a bit of money out there, see what happens, and then nice and quickly update your models as you see performance coming through on these people. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting space because there's always new data becoming available and it's going to become more and more important and banks are starting to look at it. And I guess Telcos is going to be potentially the interesting one because they will probably claim that they can do quite a lot of this stuff themselves and that they have 
quite a lot of the information. Some of them might also have the analytical capabilities to to do this. Yeah, so um, they clearly got the the big prospect pools to go after as well. Yeah, so that's interesting because I, I was just talking to to next colleague in China the other day, and if you look at how WeChat and Alibaba grew, they initially started because they had all their data from their their businesses. They started doing lending to thin file, no hit type populations that the banks traditionally wanted to avoid. So they said, we can actually identify risk in these populations that you can't see, so we'll give them loans. And then that growth was really strong. And so then the traditional bank said, well, actually, you can help me convert some unproductive capital. I will give you the capital and you find the customer and lend to them. And that powered the growth that we, we see. But now those banks have essentially taken all the risk of the customers they want to avoid in the past because they're funding the loan. But all the upside, all the brand building is being done by Alibaba and WeChat. And so now, you know, it's five, nearly 10 years into their existence. Those young, no-hit customers that they started with when they were 20 are now becoming close to 30. They're going to look to buy a house. And when they go and think, where am I going to get the loan? It's not Bank of China anymore because they've never heard of it. Even though Bank of China has been giving the money or whichever bank, you know, whichever bank has yeah. been, all the upside has come to, to WeChat, to Alibaba. And now, you know, there's some regulatory pressure there now, which will mean this won't happen exactly like this. But the banks have given away their business. And I think if the banks look at, yeah, the telcos could do it and we could have the telcos help us. You know, they've got the prospect pool. They've got a few million customers. We can use some of their data. And particularly in a market where there's developing and developed alongside each other. And you're saying, well, these are thin file you do run that risk that you might partner with somebody for too long that by the time you say, okay, now this customer is mine, I want to give them a mortgage, they've never heard of you. And there's a mortgage fintech that started up and it's giving the mortgage away. And now well, you're- What you often see as the next step then is that the banks end up buying that fintech. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, I mean, you've, you, you put the capital behind making something great and then you end up buying out what you existed making great. But, and- maybe that's not such a bad, I mean, that, that's a typically a reasonable deal. It's, it's typically a reasonable deal if you're getting in early enough in the answer. process. So now when you look at Ant Financial, you know, it's essentially the fourth or fifth biggest bank in, in China. Yeah. And I think regulations are going to step in. So this decoupling of risk where Ant was creating the loan, but taking none of the risk, the regulators have cracked down on. So it, Ant's not going to be able to keep growing like it has been, but the banks can't buy them anymore. You know, in normal market, yeah, you buy the fintech a bit sooner and things. But I think in a market, and I'm thinking more now East Africa, where obviously kind of that big push has been telco-driven. You know, yeah. Safari are kind of behind the, the revolution in, in lending there. The banks are in a position where, you know, the banks in, 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 in Kenya, at least, you know, is traditional banks, are not going to have the fleet feet that a fintech is going to have. And they will have to weigh up that thing. If they don't do this, if they don't say, how do I use alternative data and lend to new customer pools? In 10 years' time, the only people borrowing from, from, from the big banks will be the same ones that are borrowing now. So it's going to just be a, a decreasing population. And you know, I got the bank account from my dad's bank when I was a kid. And then you had the teenager card. And then I got my student loan from them. And then I got my first job and I, I opened an account at their bank. You used to have these long relationships with banks. But I think there's a risk that you can partner away that if they're not getting into the space, if they're not saying, I need to lend like a telco would, or I need to lend like a fintech would. In lots of ways, I think the Far East has been ahead of this. And 
but the, the risk you just mentioned of the big banks, you know, being at risk of effectively selling, providing capital for these these smaller players to, to grow, and ultimately finding themselves having basically funded the sale of their own customers over time. Plus, all these fintechs, yeah, they might start off in the in the sort of new to market or think power, whatever it is. But as these people got repeat loans coming in, I guess the likes of Wonga and other of these payday loans are a good example of that. They, I don't think they would ever compete in terms of price of loan where the banks sit. The, the initial gap definitely gets reduced somewhat as people move their way up to, you know, from proper thin file to a little bit less thin file yeah, as I, they go through the cycle. So I did a study when I was in Hong Kong and it does involve a few assumptions, but essentially what I looked at is, here's the loan somebody opened up today. Is it with somebody they worked with before someone knew? Kind of, is there, has there been attrition? And then I looked at the price of today's loan versus the market price for their risk, which is a, involves some assumptions, but basically the fair price, or is it based on their historic price? And I looked at the curves and it, it suggested that people were more moved by how far the price of the loan is today compared to their last loan than the market price. So they, they're not aware of necessarily like, oh, I've got a super prime score, I should get 5%. They know that they paid 10% last time. And that makes sense. I mean, if you paid 10% last time, someone's offering you 8%, you'll take it, even though maybe the market price is 5 And so, yeah, with all the price comparison websites and things, it makes it a bit easier for people to be aware of the genuine best deal. But you're right, once people are in an ecosystem, as long as it's reasonable and it's easy for them, they're getting cheaper prices. They're happy with that. They've got an easy process because you're just clicking once, you're not going in. You're getting the loans from them. You don't want to, you're not sure you'll get it from another product. But yeah, I, th- I think the broader principle is that it's not so easy to sit back and wait. Some of this stuff naturally sits in this sort of information bureau world where it makes more sense to, I mean, ultimately that's where lots of this information sits already. It's interesting how you get different, if you speak to customers of bureaus, you're sort of being told, no, the bureaus are also working on it. Then you speak to guys inside the bureau and it's like, yeah, we're working on it, but... And when I spoke to the Kenya guys, they specifically listed TU and Credit Info as the bureaus operating. But it seems to me that Credit Info has got a lot more open alternative data slant than the big ones. But at the same time, the fact that they're keen to talk to me about a bunch of stuff also tells me that they're not that far with it yet. Or they sort of have the sense that, you know, maybe it's actually better to let these dedicated fintech guys, let them strut their magic stuff. And then after a while, as a bureau, I think you could be in a luxury position to say, these are the guys who really like the best. If you do it at the right time, you might be in a position to take them out and, and add it to your existing stable. Right now, also, I mean, even if you look at the lenders you're dealing with, those are also typically not the big boys. The real money sits in serving the big four banks and assisting them in addressing this need in this sector. So I can see how this is a model that could actually work for everybody. And I mean, this is an opportunity for a typical 
data disruption type of event, right? Because the credit bureaus were kind of tightly controlled marketplaces because it's a license-based thing. So you get a couple of licenses in the market, usually like in many countries, license-based. You've then got to go out to the banks, get their data, get them to sign up on some agreements to share the data with you, put all those rules in place, and, and you've got this hierarchy-structured approach to getting the data in. Whereas a fintech can get in there and say, well, I'm making some assumptions, making some guesses. I'm using big data to do this. And if you get credit going, it's it's a lot of fuel for an economy to keep to start start going. So that's sort of the basic principle of what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think that's it. Thank you very much awesome. again for your time. Well, and thank you for listening. This has been How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about lending strategies around the world and across the credit lifecycle. I was speaking to Oscar Costa of BigDataScoring.com's African division. If you'd like to speak to Oscar, you can email him at oscar.costa at BigDataScoring.com. That's Oscar with a C, Costa with a K. We'll look for his details in the notes below. And I'll see you again next Thursday. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.